0: Now, chapter 4 is very much connected with the first three chapters. This is one story uh, that extends from Genesis really all the way at the climax of Jesus and then uh, at his return uh, as recorded in the book of Revelation. But chapter 4 begins with the birth of the first child ever born naturally, Cain, to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And Eve recognizes uh, from the very beginning... That God has helped them give them something that they could have never obtained themselves, regardless of how fruitful they might have been. God gives children. All children are a gift from the Lord. And having been promised a seed, having been told in Genesis chapter 3 that a child will be born, this child will come, this child will crush God's enemy, this child will save ultimately. Mankind, it's reasonable to believe that perhaps Eve looked at Cain and believed this was the promised child. But as we read into Genesis 4, we see that this is not the promised child. And we learn that whomever this child or this man who comes, who will save mankind, he will most likely have to be more than just a man. Now, the birth of Cain is followed by, You know, seemingly rather quickly um, by the birth of Abel, his brother. And the conflict in this chapter is basically between uh, these two brothers. It's a a family conflict, and it reveals uh, more than anything that the sin that Adam and Eve committed, the sin that they brought into the world, has now passed through and is going to pass through their descendants. It will affect and has affected their children. And by affecting, I don't necessarily mean it just as, well, they're sinful parents and they're raising these good kids that now they're going to be bad kids because they've got sinful parents. No, what I mean is that uh, the curse of sin affects every single person who is ever born. They are born sinful. Men are not born desiring good or desiring God. They are born desiring evil and in need of a Savior. And the spiritual death that was brought in by the disobedience of Adam and Eve was not contained in one family or in one garden. It has spread to every family and to all of the world and everyone who would ever live in it. And we see um, within one generation, Adam and Eve, next generation, Cain and Abel, within one generation, what began with maybe something seemingly unimportant or not that big a deal, though it was still a huge deal and it was disobedience against God, the eating of a fruit has quickly turned in one generation to murder. And as we look at our world around us, Genesis informs us that the exponential growth of depravity in this world should never Surprise us, even though it grieves us. That's how sin works. It is never satisfied, and it gets worse and worse. And we see that unfolding in Genesis. As the story of God's people, beginning with Adam and Eve, unfolds, we see that every generation that follows becomes more godless than the last until eventually God would say in chapter 6, which we will come to in the next several weeks, that the wickedness of men is great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. He says, I am grieved and that I'm going to wipe man off the face of the earth. God surveys all these generations that came beginning with these two people, the results of the sin, and he says, this is evil every thought is evil now Cain and Abel is not only the story of two kinds of people it's really the story of two kinds of worship two kinds of worshipers we were designed to worship unlike any other creation and creature in the world we were designed and given God's spirit made in his image with the capacity to commune with God to have a relationship with God different than other aspects or parts of creation possibly could. We were created to worship. We were created to to glorify God. We were created to display His greatness, to display His goodness and His grace. All of life really, I believe, is worship in that everyone worships something or someone. Every single person is looking to something or someone to give them the things that only God is supposed to, meaning hope, joy, security. And there are many idols to choose from. But because of sin, that gift we were given, the capacity to worship is broken. And that our core problem is that we have a worship disorder. We look to the wrong things or we look to the right thing in the wrong way. God Himself made the first sacrifice to cover the sin. We saw that when Adam and Eve sinned, he, he killed something, some animal, ultimately giving us a picture of a substitutionary atonement, a, a covering of sin that would take place in the law and then ultimately in Jesus Christ. And he did that. He covered their sin so that he could continue in relationship with them. And as Cain and Abel come around, we see that they've been given some kind of instruction or something because they are beginning to have a regular practice. They have some sort of rhythm of sacrifice and offering before the Lord. Both Cain and Abel in this passage, they function like priests, where where they're mediating the relationship with God through bringing and offering sacrifices to Him. But they're not the same kinds of priests, but the same kinds of worshipers. The story of of Cain and Abel reveals to us that there's actually a right and a wrong way to worship, and that that right and wrong way has less to do with the kind of offering that you may present, and much more to do with the heart of the one who is offering it. It has much more to do with, well, um, let's say, less to do with things that we can actually see and much more to do with things that only God can see. In the story of Cain and Abel, we see basically two ways to live, two ways to worship. One way is the way simply of belief. And one is the way of unbelief. And everyone who exists today follows one of these two ways. The way of Abel, we'll call it, the way of belief, is the way of Loving God for God. Not loving God for His stuff, just for God. It is a way of loving God's people. It is the way of loving God's warnings, of loving God's commands, of loving and delighting in God's decisions, the way He does things. And then there is what Genesis 4 spends most of time on, the way of Cain, which is the more common way. The way of unbelief. It is the way of we'll call religion. Religion isn't always used negatively in Scripture, but mostly it is. It is the way of religion in a negative sense. It is the way of, of repudiation or, or indifference towards one another, towards the people of God. It is the way of rebellion where you do not heed God's warnings, you do not like his commands or his decisions. And one way leads deeper into the presence of God, and one way leads further away. And so as we begin to look at these two ways, we mainly see the way of Cain, and by contrast, we understand what God actually desires for us, because he does not desire us to walk like Cain, and we'll explain that. The first thing God desires for us is to have a heart of sacrifice, which quite simply is a love for him. This is not the same as having a desire to merely sacrifice. A heart of sacrifice is different than making sacrifices. David writes in Psalm 51, that's a psalm of confession really and praise over or what God has done to cleanse his heart of his sin. And he writes this in Psalm 51, verse 16, about God. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Verse 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. It's important to see that both Cain and Abel bring sacrifices. They both bring offerings. They both, in a very tangible way, look similar in how they're coming before the Lord. They bring offerings from the fruit of their respective vocations. Cain is a worker of the ground, a farmer, if you will. And Abel is a shepherd who cares for sheep. Or other animals, God rejects Cain's sacrifice, and He accepts Abel's. That's what we see happening. They both come, they both offer. Cain is rejected, Abel's is accepted. And we don't know how this happens. We don't know why they know this. We don't know if they they put these sacrifices up on the altar and then poof, one was you know burst into flames and the other stayed there. We don't know if God just simply said. That's awesome, Abel. Cain, we don't know. We don't know what happened, but we do know that Cain knew and that Abel knew that God had not accepted Cain's offering. On the surface, we don't really know really what the difference was between the two sacrifices, other than they were different in terms of the kinds. But there is nothing inherently greater about being a shepherd or a farmer the vocations are vocations they're both you know honestly uh, of the Lord the shepherds would one day provide lambs that would one day be sacrificing you know through that whole system but that there's nothing inherently wrong with being a farmer it's a it's an awesome thing it's possible that Cain brought the wrong kind or quality of sacrifice The text does give us some indication, but we kind of have to read into it a little bit. It says that Cain offered the fruit of the ground. Very simple. But about Abel's offering, it says that he offered the firstborn or the best of his flock, the fattest and the fat portions that came with it. But I would argue that the kind of sacrifice is not as important as the heart that's selected and offered it. And as I was preparing, uh, Liz was preparing the set, and and we were just dialoguing about that concept. And um, I will say that the form of worship does matter. We have to be careful a little bit and say, well, you know, the, the kind of the form doesn't matter. Well, just because someone's heart is behind something, or they say their heart is behind something, doesn't mean that they can do whatever they want and call it worship. On the other hand, we don't want to become too transfixed or or too distracted or disturbed even by form that we begin to define, even possibly too narrowly, what kinds of offerings are acceptable or not. There's a tension there. We must consider, I should say, we should not consider the quality or even the quantity of our sacrifice before we have weighed the heart behind it. And I'm not talking about someone else's heart. I'm talking about our own. And as we measure our own heart in offering sacrifice to the Lord, whatever form they take, time, talent, treasure, whatever, I believe as... If we're committed to measuring our own heart and asking our own heart some questions, that will impact the form and quality of our sacrifice. This perspective informs a lot of people, particularly those who offer a lot with very little faith, as well as those who offer very little with great faith. It helps us understand the heart of worship. In other words, the attitude in the heart of Cain and Abel is more important than the offering that is actually on the altar. The attitude in the heart is more important than the offering that's actually on the altar. Hebrews 11.4 gives us some insight into what Abel was thinking and perhaps why God may have accepted Abel's sacrifice. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous god commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith though he died he still speaks abel's sacrifice was not more acceptable because he brought lamb chops and cain brought a green salad now if it was me be like broccoli or ribeye we're going ribeye. Every day of the week, right? But God's not like that. It wasn't because He brought meat and there was greens. Some of you are like, I pick the salad, like, and we're praying for you. Abel's offering was more acceptable because it was offered by faith. And I know I say that. This is an interesting thing about. It sounds very. Um, take this as with a grain of salt. Very Christian. Oh, clearly, just offered by faith. And I could stop and go, next verse, move on, and be like, yeah, we just need to you know, make offerings by faith. Not explain, well, what is that? What does it mean to offer something by faith or not offer something by faith? Because that seems kind of important if it's going to be acceptable or not acceptable to God. We should explain that. You should ask those questions. I'm going to help you. The person of faith does several things, I believe. The person of faith brings his offering to the Lord, knowing first and foremost that whatever he brings, it is insufficient to atone for his sins. No matter how good it is, how big and pretty it is, it is going to be insufficient to atone for how bad we are. That requires faith. Perhaps it's a faith in my depravity. But the person of faith also trusts that God's grace, not our effort, not our ability to make the lamb or whatever look really pretty, not the size, not the sacrifice, oh, it was so costly for me. We trust that God's grace, not our efforts, makes that sacrifice acceptable. The person of faith also, I believe, gives what God demands. And what does God demand? Our best. Our best. But we give our best even if it's less than others. In other words, I don't compare my best to anyone else's best. The only one who truly knows my best is, guess what? The Lord and me. And so I offer my best. And again, we're always thinking, like, well, about other people. I know they can do more. I know they can. this is not about anybody else but you and the Lord. Only well, he knows what your best is. He demands our best. The person of faith offers also his best or her best out of gratitude for blessing they already have. Not expecting more blessing. Yeah, the prosperity gospel, okay? We offer sacrifices out of gratitude for the riches that we enjoy right now, not so that we can obtain some more later. And the person of faith does all of this, I believe, worshiping and offering out of delight, not duty. It is their desire and their delight because of what they know of the love and grace of God, it is not religious duty done out of fear. That if I don't do this, God's not going to accept me. No, I know God has accepted me, that's why I'm doing it. In other words, it's not offered in faith when you believe your offering is meriting favor for you. It's not offered in faith when you are giving less than what your best is it is not offered in faith if it's coming from a dutiful heart that expects to be rewarded Cain's offering when it really comes down to it was for himself Abel's offering was more for God than it was for himself It was out of a love for God Cain brought a sacrifice He looked the part, but he did not possess a true heart. The unbeliever, when it comes down to it, really loves himself more than he loves God. And even if he offers sacrifice to God, which they do, it is done in order to gain God's approval or the esteem of others. In other words, even when those who really don't believe worship, and they do, they either are going to worship false gods or they're going to worship the one true God falsely. The way of Cain is simply the way of religious unbelief. Or in the Northwest, we probably call it spiritual unbelief. God desires for us to have a heart of sacrifice. He desires ultimately for us to love Him. But secondly, God desires for us to have a heart of service. He desires for us to have a love for His people. And Cain's response to God's rejection of His sacrifice gives us a real picture of what's happening to Cain's heart. And without question, it had to hurt. I do believe that, that Cain is grieved. I feel he's disappointed but he's angry we see but it's important this this is a truth that's really important and I think I probably borrowed it from Paul Tripp and something because he's wicked smart but it's this basic truth and it's been echoing with me for for a couple weeks that the circumstances of the offering and the relationship that that Um, Cain had with Abel good or bad did not create a problem in his heart the circumstances that he found himself in the situation and the relationship didn't create the problem in his heart on the contrary the situation and the interaction with relationships revealed the anger and the hatred and the idolatry that was already there. Isn't that the truth? Like when bad things happen, when trials come in, when you have a severed or, or hindered relationship with someone else, we always want to go like this. If this hadn't happened, if this hadn't happened, if you'd done it different, whatever, I wouldn't have reacted like this. The reality is you would have. The circumstances and the relationship created an environment to bring out what was already there there. Because God wanted to deal with it. And that's exactly what God does to Cain. He comes to him. And he'll confront him. And Before he does that, he warns Cain. He gives him a warning. because he looks at Cain, he sees where he's going. And he says, well, man, why is your face down? Don't you know if you do right, it will go well. If you come before me. Faith, it will, it will go well, but if you don't, here's your opportunity. Sin's there, and sin's per- personified, right? Like sin wants to eat you, sin wants to master you. You need to master it. It's a warning. It's a grace of God to warn. When faced with disillusionment and. And with disappointment, and when, when confronted with the fact that, you know, he made a mistake. He has an opportunity. He has a choice. He could heed God's warning. He could receive it. He could believe God. He could rule the sin, or he could be ruled by it. And we see that Cain murders his brother after convincing him to go into the field him. And after the murder, God comes. And it's a, it's a veritable replay of Adam and Eve. As soon as the sin enters in, as soon as they, they take that bite, God comes walking. And God does the same thing with Cain here. And he confronts Cain personally. And he again comes asking rhetorical questions or not seeking answers, but he's given Cain the opportunity to, it's an opportunity to confess. He knows where Abel is. Where's Abel? He knows. God asked him where his brother is, and he not only lies, I don't know, he goes further to dishonor God and reveal his disdain for God. To hear in his voice, Where's Abel? Where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Is that how you can speak to God Almighty? Am I my brother's keeper, Lord? Do you know anything? The disdain and the restraint that God has because He already knows. And in response to his question my my brothers keeper if he was going to answer he would have said yes you are Cain God does not answer Cain refuses to take responsibility for sin but more that he reveals his refusal to take responsibility for the care of his brother and I don't mean in that moment I mean, overall. That represents Cain's overall disposition towards his brothers, toward family. God tells Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me. This is really important because Failing to love his brother, and you go, well, he murdered his brother. Well, let's not forget in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus was very clear that hating your brother is the same as murder. And so he refused to love his brother, obviously, before the murder and afterwards. But failing to love his brother was not a sin against Abel before it was a sin against God. The blood is crying out to me, not just the blood is crying out. Our failure to love one another is not a trifle thing in the eyes of the Lord. See, the way of Cain lacks not only the love for God, it lacks a love for God's people. If we look at John, 1 John, his epistle, chapter 3, verse 11, he says this, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. What does verse 12 say? We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You know what the way of Cain is? The way of Cain is the way of comparison. It's the way of competition. It's the way of coveting one another. In fact, the way of Cain, and I feel like I have fallen into this before, and here's how you know. The way of Cain tends to cause you, or if you will, when you do that, you dwell much on your failures and you struggle to celebrate with other people's successes. Love for the brothers, celebration with the brothers, encouraging and upholding the brothers and sisters is supposed to characterize the one who knows the love of God, the one who believes. And no one said that was easy. No one said being a family of families is easy. You're hard to love, and so am I. But it's necessary. And more than just necessary, it's commanded. It's commanded that we love one another. And disobeying God and loving one another is not a trifle thing. Well, I haven't murdered anybody. As Jesus would say, quote, have you hated your brother? See, the love for the people of God, the big C church, I believe most tangibly is lived out in the little C local church. What you saw as we prayed over our brothers and sisters this morning, Where we, as disciples of Jesus, tangibly commit to one another. And really, what we're saying, as a people, I am your keeper, and you are mine. I'm your keeper, and you are mine. I want you to love me, and I want to love you. I need you, and you need me. I am your keeper, and you are mine. God desires us to do that. And the way of Cain pushes against that. Thirdly, God desires for us to have a heart for submission. I'll call a love for his way. And Cain does not love the ways of God. God's response to Cain's response reveals a lot. First, Cain is cursed for his sin. And like his parents, his sin has resulted in in pollution of the land. In other words, when we sin, it never remains just private to us. It bleeds out. And the pollution of the land is a theme that's carried out throughout the Old Testament. It's one of the issues God constantly brings up to Israel. Your idolatry has led to a pollution of the land. In the eyes of Cain, though, as he listens to this verdict from the Lord his sentence is worse than death essentially he is told look you are going to be a wandering fugitive you are a very fruitful farmer who had a home and a place now you're going to be a wandering fugitive who can barely scrape a meal together because your farming is no longer gonna work Cain had rejected God's warning about sin. He had refused to take responsibility for his brother and for sinning against his brother. And now he basically rejects God's decisions. See, he says, this is greater than I can bear. And for a moment, you want to feel sorry for him. But let's Be sure you understand, he didn't cry out a lot of other things. The Lord came to him. He didn't cry out, oh, my God, what have I done? He didn't recognize his guilt. He wasn't broken over the death of his brother. He didn't say, thank you for not killing me as I deserved. His cry does not come from a broken heart, but a rebellious one. He doesn't recognize guilt and mourn over what is done, which is the very characteristic of an unbeliever confronted in their sin. There's no contrition, but there's a lot of complaint. More than anything, his complaint reveals his refusal to honor God as Lord. You know what's happening here? Cain embodies the heart of Satan what is the heart of Satan it means this I'm gonna run my own life I'm gonna make my own rules and I'm going to be Lord The way of Cain is a refusal to submit to God's authority and we see this explained clearly in Jude 11 now there's no chapters in Jude 11 it's one big chapter so verse 11 he's talking about um, really condemning certain people that have crept into the church and they're perverting the grace of God and denying Jesus. And he says this about them in verse 11, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. Now remind he's talking to people that have come into the church. He says, they have walked in the way of Cain and have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So they have walked in the way of Cain Balaam's error and Korah's rebellion. To go, what the snarf of those things? We need to read our Bibles. Because it's all in there. It's in the book of Numbers. Those who walk in the way of Cain are like those who first made Balaam's error. Balaam was a prophet. And he was a prophet who was hired by a non-believing and fear-filled king to curse the people of God. Having watched Israel... Win a a battle, he's like, "Uh Uh-oh, we need some spiritual help. And so he goes to Balaam with a big pile of money. He says, I need you to curse them. He's like, Can't do anything without God's approval. Hold on. And he goes, God, can I go help this guy? No, those are my people, don't touch him. Sorry, can't do it. Then he leaves, comes back with a bigger (laughs) pile of money. Hey, got a lot of money here. Let me check. And he goes and checks, right? does this a bunch of times sorry I can't do it bigger pile of money right finally after being asked a thousand times not that many but you get my point God relented fine go the repeated requests have revealed what Balaam's true heart was you get a lust for money and a lust for position that's in Numbers 21 and similarly, I should back up, and a refusal to listen to God the first time. Then you have Korah. Korah was an Israelite, and he was uh, at the time that Moses was leading the people in the wilderness, and he led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, who were God's chosen leaders in the wilderness, and he accused them of exalting themselves above the assembly. Oh, you guys think you're special. Oh, who made you leaders? Well, God did. But who, oh, you guys get to make all the decisions, right? Yes, because God placed them there and courted like it and rebelled against God's leaders. Essentially, the way of Cain is a rejection of God's chosen ways and a refusal to follow God's chosen leaders compelled by their own desires and convicted by their own opinions. You do not trust God. You don't trust His decisions, and they don't trust His decision makers. That's the way of Cain. Not love in God's ways. There's a better way, and I know it. The way of Cain is the way of unbelief. It, it possesses the routine of religion without the heart of repentance. It possesses... Identification with a family, with a people, but without a true commitment to that relationship. It possesses verbal acceptance of God's ways as long as they don't conflict with mine. That's a great decision, God, because I like it. That's a great leader, God, because I like him. But when they conflict, oh, that must be wrong because it's wrong with Scripture? No, it's just wrong with what I like. But what we see in the most amazing thing is, though this is the way of unbelief, God has grace for those who do not believe. He doesn't kill Cain. He doesn't say, quit you complaining. He gives him a mark, whether it be a unicorn horn or I don't know what, something that you could identify Cain from a distance so no one would touch him. He shows him grace. As much as God is holy and just, He is merciful and gracious. And Cain still doesn't see that. Oh, it's too great. Don't worry, I'm going to protect you so no one hurts you. Instead of acknowledging even that grace, he proceeds to walk away from the presence of God. And that's really what's wrong with our culture that it's gone away from the presence of God into the land of Nod, which really means wanderer or lost. People have walked into a world where they are lost, and they have built cities literally dedicated, which is what the word Enoch means, to themselves. Away from the presence of God, building kingdoms devoted to ourselves. The way of Cain is the way of building a family and a community and even a spiritual life apart from the presence of the one true God. Now, as we close, we need to understand that God wanted the story of Cain and Abel recorded for his people. That as they were uh, you know, entering into the wilderness and becoming this nation, they had just received the law. We, we can see that, okay, well, why give them the story of Cain and Abel? Because they've just gotten a whole litany of, here's the sacrificial system, and he wanted to make sure their heart was right. It wasn't just sacrifices that needed to be made. Their hearts had to be right with him. They had to be offered in faith. And as they walked amongst pagan nations, there were pagan nations everywhere, God wanted to explain them, you know, don't forget, all these people come from the same place. And they've been shown grace as and I haven't wiped them out yet. But I've shown you blessing. I've chosen you as a people. And he wanted them to remember that the key to life as they had a tabernacle in the center of their camp and that's where the Spirit of God, the presence of God dwelled. He said, stay close to that. Stay close to the presence of God. Press into the presence of God because that is the key to life. But we also have Passages like Romans 15:4, where Paul says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through encouragement, the scriptures we might have hope. Not just for Israel, it's for us today. So, what's the lesson, right? Well, some pastors would say, Don't walk like Cain. Let's pray. Right? Just don't walk like Cain. Well, Let's be honest. There's not much hope in that. And there's not much hope on that because I walk like Cain. And so do you. See, we don't just live in a Cain culture. We are Cain. We're not God in the story. And although a lot of us are really good at playing the victim, we're not able. We're Cain. And the first step is acknowledging that and confessing that we're Cain in the stories. Like in ourselves, we fail to love God, even if we go through the routines of religion. In ourselves, we fail to love one another. I'm sure somebody's keeping that person. Someone will take care of them. Amen. Hey, Left to ourselves, we fail to heed his warnings and love his commands. But the first step toward belief, away from the way of Cain, is to confess our failure. That's where we start. Christianity is not built on people that go, well, look how strong I am. No, it's built on people admitting how weak they are. Hebrews 12 reminds us of this. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly or the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, see that you do not refuse him who's speaking. Jesus, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, listen to the warning do not refuse Jesus today. Abel was killed by the sin of his brother. But Jesus offered himself to be killed by his brothers because of our sin. Our sin killed Jesus. Jesus is the greater able. He is the perfect priest who offered the perfect sacrifice which was not some animal. It was himself that he might restore us, and ultimately restore the land. Without Christ, we walk the way of Cain. That is what we will do. We will love ourselves. We will hate our brothers. We will believe that we know better. But through faith in Christ, we don't just make better sacrifices. The Bible says we actually become them. In Romans 12, it says, we present our bodies, everything we do as living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. We turn from living like Cain, where instead of pretending to be good, we confess that my sin, my sin, killed Jesus. It's a life where I live acknowledging that anything good I might do is insufficient to save me, but I'm still going to do what I can. And a place where we live believing that whatever little I do, Christ makes that little a delight to God. And I live giving God my best even if it's worse than everyone else. And where I endeavor to live and do what is right out of gratitude for what he has done and not expectation of more. Where I live, I live to obey God and receive his warnings as that from a loving father, his commands as that from a loving father, and his decisions as that from one who truly loves me. I obey him out of delight and not duty. Hebrews 12, as you end that passage, verse 28, says this in response to that truth. Therefore, knowing that Christ has covered us, that Christ has redeemed us, that Christ has forgiven us, that Christ has adopted us into this family of families, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to god acceptable worship with reverence and awe and that's what we're going to do we're going to we gather here not to be entertained not to be educated not even to primarily fellowship but to give god glory for what he has done to give him worship and we're going to do that in song as we sing out of hearts who recognize that whatever we brought it's insufficient but he has made us acceptable in christ And we're going to remember by taking communion and giving of our tithes and offerings and then ultimately loving one another as we sing together in one voice. Glory to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your grace to us. You are good, and You are generous, and You are patient. You are long-suffering and slow to anger thank You for sending Your Son to die. We thank You that Your Son lived the life that I was supposed to and that He died the death that I deserved and that through faith, Lord, we are acceptable. I pray that You will help us to walk in Christ. Father, forgive us for walking like Cain. Forgive us for for going through religious routine Forgive us for not loving one another. Forgive us for rejecting your ways. And Help us, Lord. Help us to to love you by your spirit in us. It is in the name of Jesus we pray, we hope, and we ask for his return. Amen.